What are the working conditions for sex workers in the UK? How can we improve the work environment for sex workers, protect them from marginalisation, violence and deportation, while securing them economic justice as well as equal access to health care? What are the dangers surrounding the systematic victimisation of sex workers and how can the notion of consent be articulated around their empowerment? My name is Laura and I'm a producer at SOAS Radio. In this episode of Consent Vent, we will try to answer these questions and explore the reasons behind the marginalisation of sex workers and how decriminalisation of sex work can allow sex workers to assert both their human rights as well as their labour rights. We will try to explore the nature of consent in sex work and how this relates to the empowerment of workers. For this, we will hear fares from SWAM, the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement Collective, who will discuss their views on these issues as well as the work that they have been doing towards the decriminalisation of sex work. But first, we wanted to hear Emily, a former sex worker in London, explaining the difficulties the criminalisation of sex work brought to her everyday work and personal life, as well as her views on consent. It's a, it's a tricky one to talk about. Um, I, I lost some friends because of it. Um, friends who are very liberal. Um, who just some weird, weird, there's still very strange attitudes towards it. Um, so I, I feel no shame about it. I am not, I don't feel shameful at all, but it doesn't make me any less careful. Um, there was two people at the time who were in London and very close to me and when I made that decision, the, the other side of that is it's there is a, a lot of risk involved and how you can minimize, the only way to minimize it is to let people know where you are, your address, how long you're going to be to keep yourself safe so I knew that other people needed to know and also I just wanted to tell my friends because it, it was a big change in my life but I think even with people who would identify as being quite open and liberal and sexually free and all of these things that they have bias that they're not aware of and especially when it's someone very close to them they think maybe they can weigh in when they can't so it's 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 been quite tricky knowing who to tell and who not to tell um but as time's gone on now i don't really care because i was an escort it was it's just me it's me and the person that is paying for the service so i'm not in a group of other women and i miss that because you can I, that's the one thing i wish had have been a bit different um, but with that comes a bunch of other things that you've got to consider because someone's usually taking a part of your money so i was responsible for my safety but i also missed out on that sisterhood of other women which would have been really cool there, there are big um, agencies in london that advertise um, but then you're uh, in within a group of women that are on the website and people 
our pick, you know, and if you're in that situation, it's different. But then you've got to consider that you're you're not your own independent, you're not your own independent person. Like someone is, you're working for, you're working for someone else. Um, and that's something I considered a lot when I knew that I could just do it directly. So um, I don't, I was never part of a network. I, but I also know that I've heard things about that as well, that you don't have as much independence over who you see, how often you see people. Like I wanted total, um, I wanted the 100% say in all of my decisions. So it was harder in the beginning to connect with people, but I am glad that I did it that way and that I wasn't involved in, um, in, a biz in someone else's business. I've never um, spoken about it to anyone um, in the medical profession. Okay. I don't want it on my records. Yeah, okay. So I don't want, I'm very aware that I don't want this on my medical records. So when you go for sexual health testing, they always ask, um, are you, you know, using needles? Um, you know, that's a levels of um, contamination infection uh, or are you a sex worker and I've never answered yes because I I, I just I don't feel comfortable um, and even when I've been assured that the GP won't get the record I, I don't feel okay so um, health wise um, I check ups pretty regularly you know I was always safe but I never spoke to anyone in the healthcare profession about it. And uh, is it, a, you know, the family planning? Yeah. Is it something where, an area, a um, place where you can actually be more anon anonymous? You can, from what they say, but, um, you, like, you can get free condoms and, you know, you can go and get free testing. And But I, I just never wanted to bring it up. Um, Uh, also with these places when they find out like it's the same if there's been um, if something traumatic has happened they want to refer they want you to speak to people and more people come in and that's what, always some, what I was concerned with I was fine I was healthy I knew I was healthy I was getting checked I just didn't feel like it was necessary and I didn't really feel like it was anyone else's business unless I felt like I needed to I had a problem There are certain circumstances where you apply for a job and they get your medical, they will want your medical records. So if I ever went for a job in any capacity where I needed to disclose and that was on there, like I, that, that was my concern. Um, like I'm sure that they are confidential but I mean also with doctors they're people they're humans and they've got all of their own biases and if I go in and need help with anything like mental health or physical health and they look at my records and they see that I've discussed this with them am I going to be treated differently like, I don't know and knowing 90% that that won't happen it's just not enough The hardest part was sitting through um, these 
hundred pound dinners with men being racist and homophobic and wanting you to sit and nod and smile. That was the hardest part and especially with with these people like I, I felt like they should be paying me. Cause no normal person puts up with that shit. Like you should be paying me and um it's difficult, it's emotionally difficult to um to keep your own identity whilst you're dealing with that, to know that you're not um, like reinforcing it in any way, um, whilst you're also putting a price on yourself, which at some points, like anyone who's had any issues with their own uh, body or self-worth or mental health or anything, it's a really tricky thing to throw in there. Um, so it, it's not it's not simple. I thought it would just be the sex, but it's not. That was the easy bit. It was everything else that was difficult. But I also know that I felt empowered while I was doing it. I never felt taken advantage of. Um, during my experiences, I could always leave. I always had... Um, the agency to behave in however I wanted to behave. Um, and it, it makes me angry that someone can take their personal feeling and say everyone feels the same. Everyone is different. Um, I never feel like I was... Um, like it was a sort of trauma. It was my decision. It was something I wanted to do. should be legalised, it makes me fume, because you can't report anything. It makes people, it, worst case scenario, something happens, no, you don't report, you would not say anything because you are committing a crime. Um, like you, there's no there's not really any way around it until it gets decriminalized um but i don't see that happening here anytime soon like i just don't there isn't really um that would be the best thing about having a group of women around you or working with other people working in an organization but then there's other types of things that come into that that which make you unsafe from different angles if you have a pimp if there's other people wanting there's other lots of other pressures that make you vulnerable i don't think there ever there ever is going to be a good situation until it's legal Unfortunately, it's many women that have that idea. It's more women that actually will say, that's wrong, they don't have a choice, they've had a bad childhood, you know, they don't have the option. Um, and, they, and they put that on you. Mm -hmm. There's a, a huge fear of looking at someone making these choices and then they look at their husband 
they look at the male people in their life they I mean realistically most people are either they know a sex worker or they know someone who has paid for sex but looking at something that people find so intimate and putting a price on it just makes people uncomfortable and I think it questions their idea of um, marriage and relationships and monogamy and intimacy and things that really they've never questioned in their whole life so it's so much easier to say those women are doing the devil's work they're doing this you know they're immoral they don't have or they don't have options and there's the pity thing rather than to look and say well what but why like why is it a bad thing if everyone's safe and consenting and also why is that worse than being virtual or um, an escort why to conflate trafficking with consensual sex work is it's very uneducated and it's very ignorant which is fine if that if you don't want to educate yourself the problem is when these same people have decisions about how I live my life if that is your if that's your belief and that's that's what you think fine but when it impacts the laws that impacts me that's the problem so the trafficking groups that reference sex work and prostitution of the se- they're, they're in that job they should be better educated better educated and they should know if it's your if you think that is your position to talk about at least know what you're talking about or talk to the people that you're talking about that i think is very dangerous to talk about the two things in one sentence um I'm, I'm proud of what I did. I, I think I helped people. I'm still in contact with them. I feel no shame about what I did. Um, and I th- it can be a very satisfying job. Um, I've got a lot of professional pride in how I've handled situations and dealt with it. It's a hard job, but um, I don't regret it. I did the best thing for myself. Um, at the time and I'd do it again and I'd still do it um, and nothing anyone would say would change my mind about that We are now going to talk to Fez from Swam Welcome Fez and thank you for joining us Hi, thank you So first of all, could you tell us what kind of work you do at Swam and how the collective started off? Yeah, um, Swam started 10 years ago as um, Sex Worker Open University uh, We had a different name <laughs> It's um, a sex worker-led organization uh, formed for the purposes of campaigning for decriminalization, but also as a support kind of network. It's based in London, but we also have branches now in the Midlands and in the North, and we have quite a few people in Scotland. I'm in Plymouth, so (laughs) it's a bit more national now. And yeah, we do quite a lot of different things, lobbying. Um, We've been doing quite a bit of the responses to kind of government inquiries. We had our big conference recently, just there in kind of mid-May, as well as actual social events for sex workers and support groups, um, a weekly breakfast. 
that we are also involved in. So it's quite a, quite a range of things. <laughs> so your collective is campaigning to decriminalise sex work in the mm. UK and globally. Could you tell us a bit more about the current legislation surrounding sex work in the UK and what SWOM is campaigning for exactly? So the UK has a form of legalisation where uh, to buy and sell sex, it's legal, but there are restrictions on various um, other forms of sex work. So soliciting street work is illegal and so is working together um It's considered a brothel if you have two workers or more in the same space, even if they're not working at the same time. So we campaign for decriminalisation, which would basically le legalise both those forms, make it possible for workers to work together and rent, rent, rent spaces together to cut costs without it, you know, being a risk to, um, a risk to them um, because it's a crime. And it follows what New Zealand have at the minute. But we specifically want to um, include migrants in that because that's a flaw with the New Zealand model. So it's a little bit like we want the New Zealand model, with including migrants, <laughs> full decriminalisation. So what, what is the uh, New Zealand model, actually? It's decriminalisation. So you legalise um, buying, selling, but all forms. So this series talks about uh, consent and how we understand the concept as well as how it is affected by the power structures and systems of oppression mm -hmm. present in our societies. Um, how would you say consent is articulated in an environment where the nature of work is quite precarious and the safety for sex workers remains difficult to achieve? Yeah, I think it's definitely a very complex issue. So one of the reasons that... Um decriminalization would be so important for example is that in a criminalized system even in a semi-criminalized system like the one that we have there is less room for negotiation in the uh, booking procedure you know so for indoor workers for example it's quite common um, especially if you work um, advertising online to use bad client lists and to be able to use screening methods online such as the Ugly Mugs website. And one of the problems with um, the Nordic model, which, has, which is a, a law that's being proposed in the UK, which would seek to criminalize clients, is that They, the, this room for negotiation becomes much more restricted. Um, if a client is criminalized, they're much less likely to hand over details about themselves, you know, and um, things like their real identity, which especially if you're um, looking to go to a client's house, you'd, you might be looking to get from them. It's often sold as this um, feminist approach to sex work um, because uh, the client is seen as an abuser and um, as, you know, um, assaulting workers and, and all of this. And so the criminalization of the client would end demand. And so that would decrease this uh, violence against women. That's kind of the rationale behind the Nordic mm -hmm. model. So it uh, began in Sweden. And in Sweden, they've seen quite a development towards a very hostile environment to use the to borrow Theresa May's phrase for migrants, <laughs> um, the uh, hostile environment uh, towards sex workers in 
Sweden, like very, very hostile, where you get punished if you are not not demonstrating that you want to leave the industry. So it's a bit kind of, you know, again, it comes back to this notion of consent. You need to demonstrate yourself as a as a perfect victim. And also you cannot um, say that, you know, you have children that you're supporting and that you are supporting them through sex work. No, you need to be demonstrating that you want to leave. And even then, there have been some really, really sad cases where children have been taken from sex work. Because I think in Sweden, that's actually a pretty normal thing. I, I cannot fully comment on it. I don't I don't think it's as as uncommon as uh, I would hope. But yeah, I think I, it's a societal thing. It's this idea of the fallen woman and the mother not being an ap- uh, appropriate parent. You know, this uh, respectability politics is, is really, really central to this whole thing. Yeah, be, be it if you're a student trying to remain on their course, be it if you're trying to access health services in the NHS, be it if you're a mother, you know, basically, if you want to exist outside of the industry in any way, no, you're not allowed to because you have that stigma attached to you and it will follow you, you know, so it really demonstrates that as much as absolutely decriminalization, it, it has to happen as well. There needs to be this um, move to alleviate the stigma for sure. In the UK, it's really preferred to be able to work with other people. Being able to work with other people is much safer. So currently, the legal way um, to work is to work alone and indoors. And so this creates a situation where you're not able to have anyone else in the house. You can even um, receive repercussions if you have a friend in the other room, you know, things like that. And so if you want to work with absolutely no chance of um, repercussion or a much lower chance of, you know, police getting involved or your migrant status being threatened or anything like that, your only option is to work alone, either by travelling to the client's house, which is obviously um, putting yourself potentially in a a really dangerous situation, or by inviting them into your home, which then can have implications for your tenancy agreement, um, as well as um, obviously the client now knowing where you live. Um, it's, it's really problematic and one of the kind of most common um, things, the changes that sex workers want uh, for the law is to be able to work with other people, even just having someone else um, there, being able to cut costs, that kind of thing. It's not necessarily, you know, managing a work environment. To, it's, it's, more, it's more about that camaraderie and solidarity and being able to... Mm have someone know that you're there, I think is a big thing. Um, And then for street workers, being criminalized really causes this kind of cycle um, because if you're um, in a situation where you're working on the street, you're working outdoors and you're served with a fine, you know, you're already in a situation where you're doing sex work to survive. Where are you going to go to be able to pay the fine? You know, mm. um, so this criminalization is is really really problematic in that sense as well. And those are both the kind of areas I think that are probably the biggest focus in terms of what we want to change. And what are actually the options for sex workers when they want to report crimes? So um, we released a report similar, to basically about that uh, recently called No Silenced Violence where um, sex workers spoke to us about their experiences trying to access justice. It's a very, uh, you know, complex and a bit a bit kind of 
um, hit and miss, mm. <laughs> to say the least. Um, but uh, there are uh, there is a minority of sex workers who have had good experiences, and it has to be stressed that you know even in, for example, in New Zealand. They have had a, a kind of better better police relations happen, but if you look at how long it's taken, it, even for, even there, it took a, a good decade before there were sex workers kind of reporting. Okay, things are better maybe with the police, and so I think just that alone goes to show how difficult and strained this situation is. If you want to report some kind of violence, you have to really be able to weigh up a lot of different things. Um, be able to weigh up the fact that police are going to know that you're a sex worker, you know, weigh up the fact that if you're working in any way illegally, they may be able to hold that against you. Um, Yeah, I have heard quite a lot of different stories where people have reported some kind of violence, uh, especially stalking and people stealing their earnings and things like that. And being then told, well, actually, you've just told me that you've been working with another worker. That's illegal. We're now going to try and take you up for brothel keeping instead of dealing with the actual crime that you reported. So we heard in one of the testimonies how the NHS was not found to be efficient enough in terms of health support. So how could the NHS provide a service adapted to sex workers' needs without reinforcing the marginalisation of workers? Again, it's a little bit kind of a lottery in terms of where you live, especially. I've heard of um, some really great services in London, like uh, Dean Street, where you get to have a gold card if you're a, you know, a sex worker um, and you, you can go in and you can like get testing and have your results on the same day and coming from Plymouth that is just absolutely unheard of Mm -hmm. Um, so it really to some degree is, is quite a lottery I think you know in Dean Street as well and I think quite a few in London you can become completely anonymous and then if you live in a more rural place in the UK or even just a smaller city quite often you're having to give your name kind of out loud at reception and you know even just that before you even add being a sex worker can be quite a problem Um, and I think just reflects the difference of the NHS funding around the country anyway but specifically being a sex worker so a lot of Basically, I don't know really if the NHS workers are trained. Um, I hope that they are, like on on, um, sex work kind of sensitisation. But what the kind of difference in treatment is really really unbelievable there's situations I mean me personally I've been told um, when accessing sexual health services all kinds of different things I've had some nurses that have been brilliant and you know just acknowledge that it's a job and that you're Uh, at higher risk, um, you know, and so they kind of carry out those additional checks or whatever that you want, but don't, you know, kind of over-sensationalize it. Whereas I've also had personally um, situations where uh, I was once brought into a room where these two middle-aged women (laughs) kind of sat there pearl clutching um, and asking me all these kinds of different questions about um, oh but isn't it unpleasant you know don't you absolutely hate you know the job and just stuff that was like not at all relevant to my health anyway Mm. you know it it was really really yeah quite quite (laughs) ridiculous but then me personally I feel like I've I've received probably one of one of the um, overall best uh, treatments I've heard some really really terrible stories and just people being really dissuaded from going and getting sexual health uh, services, which is not what you want. 
Um, but then also I think what might be worth considering is the NHS like at large um, because uh, one thing that I would think of is mental health support I've had the, I've had it where um, it's yeah it's it's reasonably common to hear sex workers say on support groups oh okay does anybody know of a therapist who is accepting a sex work and that, just the fact that that is really really common request hmm. you know I think indicates something that NHS um, therapists I think with anyone who's accessing mental health support in the NHS it can be quite a lottery anyway before you're a sex worker even but um, something quite common that has been told especially um, to students actually student sex workers is um, this concern that you're doing sex work as a form of self-harm um, I've, heard, <laughs> mm. I've heard that from quite quite a lot of students and a lot of people a lot of um, health professionals believing that if you're doing sex work you're trying to actively um, you do yeah do some kind of self-destruction yeah. that it's kind of that's kind of um, hindering your health and so attitudes I think is the, the big problem there really some kind of training would be great <laughs> that, that's very interesting um, mm. that people are bringing that up during the support group that you're providing the swarm liaise with the NHS or uh, counsellors I've heard whispers of people wanting to like trained therapists wanting to create some kind of like sensitization training for mental health professionals and that would be absolutely amazing I don't know if that is going to happen but something like that would be great I I know that globally um, in some other countries st kind of things like that happen I mean even with police you know um, whether or not you think the police um, are worth really approaching in that way but um, here the police guidance is actually really really good they just don't follow it okay. and so it would be interesting to know what the health kind of uh, services around around the world in the Uh, in the decriminalized places do about it. So in the last issue of uh, Swarm magazine, uh, one of the contributors talks about how they believe they were trained for the job as they were experienced as having mm. sex, at having sex they didn't really want and pretending to enjoy it. So this is an isolated testimony and that doesn't necessarily relate mm. and reflects on the entire sex work community. Uh, but would you say that the notion of consent in these situations becomes substantial through monetization only? It's, yeah, very, very complex. And what I would probably position this against or speak in the context of is the idea of enthusiastic consent that I hear a lot. And I know that there's already a lot of critique of, on it. But from a sex worker's perspective, especially, it's extremely awkward yeah. <laughs> to see the feminist community laud this idea of enthusiastic consent. It really is very awkward because it, the alternative suggested is that, of course, you know, we are being assaulted whenever we're, we're working um, because we're not enthusiastic about working. And it, yes, it's very murky. And as much as I kind of um, definitely understand the, the need for that as a practice in like non-transactional contexts it is yeah quite a general rule uh, that it, 
it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think that under austerity in this situation, really what um, sex workers are doing when they weigh up the decision to do sex work, whether they, you know, are really, really happy and excited to be liberated or empowered, which, you know, is great, but not the, you know, not the norm necessarily, Mm. or whether they're feeling like there's, you know, very little option in life and this is kind of all they have left. I, I, I don't think that these ideas, are, this idea of consent as something that needs to be enthusiastically agreed to or consent as meaning um, enjoying is very helpful because it really just helps to contribute to this idea that the people that have made, you know, with their own agency a decision for their own survival are actually agreeing to their themselves being assaulted. Actually, linking back to that idea that uh, sex workers are considered as self-harming, um, mm. could you tell us a bit more about this notion of consent in sex work that actually can help victims of sexual abuse or trafficking to deal with their own traumas? Yeah, for sure. I think that with um, sex in general, like um, sex work or doing some kind of kink, I know that um, the latest issue of uh, Mind to Define had um, one of one of the entries, she spoke about um, her BDSM work and related it to how she did sex work. This idea of being able to set your boundaries and negotiate everything very very clear, very upfront, you know, I can definitely, definitely, it's not my personal experience, but I can definitely see how that could help quite a lot of people who have trauma and in processing their trauma, especially because, I mean, if you think about the way that sex happens, you know, in quote, in quote marks, naturally, um, in non-transactional context, it can be quite murky and it can be quite difficult to, to be able to kind of set aside time to say up front uh, all of these things and in sex work that is the norm that is you know if you're working online especially that is very much the norm um, to kind of list what you what you're offering and then they pick from that you know it's very different situation and so I can definitely see how for some it can be something through which they can reclaim sort of ownership of their body and how, how they have sex. In a TEDx talk you gave you explain how trafficking and consensual sex work are often regarded as the same, often due to the nature of the legislations in place and strong law enforcement. Uh, could you explain how this conflation can become detrimental to sex workers and also victims of trafficking? Yeah, so um, the way that the trafficking, sex trafficking is defined is very complex, complicated and it's quite deliberately vague. We have the modern slavery bill in UK law and then we have the Palermo Protocol that is the international agreement of trafficking. So it's kind of two that you work within in each country, like you have your own version and then you're also working with the Palermo Protocol, which defines it in a, in a dodgy way. It's like Oh, the harboring, the transportation of sex work of uh, of yes, of people for the purposes of prostitution, and then it has a section of saying consent is irrelevant, which is very pertinent, I think, to this discussion, and says it all really. You know, consent is irrelevant. You know, um, really how dare you have of, any kind of agency? Yeah, it really brings this question <laughs> of who holds this notion of consent. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. I think that it's. Uh, a societal thing it's this idea of prostitution sex work as not possible to be a choice how could you decide to do that how could you you know um, which 
comes from, I think, several different camps. Um, you know, there's the whole idea of prostitution as violence against women, and there, there's that angle. But I think also what might be interesting to think about is that it's also very convenient for a neoliberal world to create sex work as something that cannot be a choice. In order to create it as um, something that can be a choice, you would have to kind of acknowledge the standards in which a lot of sex workers are in when they make that choice, which would acknowledge that, you know, maybe neoliberalism is not the best um, mm-hmm. method. Actually, there was this Marxist feminist, uh, Sylvia Federici, who said this, uh, to demand wages for housework is the first step toward refusing it because the demand for wage makes our work visible, which is the most indispensable condition to begin to struggle against it. And that makes me think about you know, sex work, mm-hmm. um, it always automatically classified as a trafficking or exploitative activity, or at least uh, always a precarious profession that austerity creates and drive women towards. But do you think sex work would completely disappear if we reached economic justice for women and all the marginalised groups as well? Um, I, I Honestly, I don't know. That's like something that's so hotly debated. And I personally, I change my mind all the time. And like, I think in Swarm as well, we, we depending on who you ask, you would have completely different answers as well, I think, which represents, which uh, I think shows the diversity in, in sex workers' views, especially when it comes to things like that, like um, especially socialist feminist sex workers who you know we we are always debating this idea of if socialism happens or if capitalism dies you know would it still exist <laughs> yeah i i really don't know i think that that is definitely a key debate mm. for sure um and actually do you do you offer support for workers or ex sex workers in swarm who are not supporting the decriminalization of sex work not that well we don't ask people's opinion you know um mm. on things um and the support support uh groups for example they always exist outside of it so i think that there's a, a big big what what that question brings up is this um idea of a need for the support spaces to be in some way separate yes joint but separate like uh, connected but you know separate so that people who maybe do not have the capacity um, to be involved in activism like the time or the resources or they just don't want to for whatever reason they can still access support and just the same amount of support and that is definitely 100% a thing um, This uh, uh, for that reason we even have rules in, in some spaces where you know politics political things are kind of kept to a minimum so to make everyone uncomfortable. Uh, you were saying you were trying to work more with migrants mm. could you tell us a bit more about about that the work you're conducting and the situation migrant sex workers are facing in the UK? Yeah so um, the situation for migrant sex workers is becoming quite complex yeah very difficult with the since the Brexit referendum vote. Obviously, there have been rises in hate crime and things like that, and that has then had sort of this knock-on impact where migrant sex workers have had maybe a little bit more focus in the media, and there was um, there has been a, a rise in raids, uh, police raids, which happen in brothel settings usually, um, where they will go under the guise of eliminating sex trafficking, and they will, you know, enter breaking. Uh, potentially seize workers' earnings. Quite often we see pictures of police with workers' money gloating and they've been known to seize passports, refuse to give them back. 
Um, and then obviously at, at, the, at its worst, uh, deport workers. So that has been very, I think, pertinent to the community and has probably resulted in a bit of a shift in priority. It was always, of course, I mean, there, were, there have always been migrants involved in organising, especially in the UK, because there's so many migrants are part of the community. I think the UK probably, it would be my estimation that the sex worker community is mostly migrants, if even if it's just over half, probably more. And so since that, so, there, so because there's always been kind of migrants organising, there's always been a real, real need for, you know, as I say, the New Zealand model decriminalisation, it legalises sex work, but only if you are a citizen. And so that we've always been very clear that's not what we want. <laughs> um, but since this increase in, ra- in raids and this increase in using anti-trafficking as a guise for deportation and anti-migrant measures, there's been even more of a focus, not just on decriminalisation itself, but on combating this idea of the, the kind of the well, the trafficking myth, right? And so what we've seen is an increase in, yeah, those kinds of campaigns. And one example that I would bring is one that Swarm is participating in, but so is the English Collective of Prostitutes and Crosstalk and Decriminal. So kind of all of the sex worker organisations in the UK together are participating in a project that is being led by the ICRSC International Committee of the Rights of Sex Workers in Europe called Rights Not Rescue. And there's actually an article that was just put up on Open Democracy recently about it to do with um, sex trafficking law and this European campaign to kind of try and put together a toolkit and just more awareness on the fact that this is happening, the fact that these ideas about trafficking are actually more often than not just being served as as, um, ways of um, lowering migrant. So sex work is a women-dominated profession. However, there's not only women working in the industry. Could you tell us a bit about the multi-gendered aspect of sex work? Definitely. There seems to be um, like a fair bit of evidence to suggest that um, the queer community at large, but especially transgender people, um, are overrepresented in the sex industry. I think that the reason that they are overrepresented um, is much more likely to boil down to the fact that transgender people experience the consequences of austerity um, more severely. So acknowledging that consent exists in the profession while strengthening it by allowing sex workers to have access to economic justice, unions and labour rights is a way to transform the industry in a more safe, less patriarchal driven profession. That doesn't seem to be possible, though, without a dramatic change in the normative perceptions on sexuality existing in our society. So how do we start tackling this big task? Um, so with unionising in particular, it's something that's being sort of, I, I would say, starting, definitely. With uh, decriminals, it's, this is more so something that is beginning in the stripper community. So the unionising of strippers is happening uh, with UVW, United Voices of the World. And I'm sure the Decriminal Twitter, I think it's Decriminal UK, <laughs> I hope so, has a lot more information. But um, that is the idea is that hopefully this stripper union will open the door in a sense to just more acceptance uh, within unionising of sex work as work because it has been historically quite difficult for 
for sex workers to get recognition in unions and for sex workers to be able to join unions. But it is definitely the current strategy, I think, is to begin there. And that will be, I, th- I think, very exciting. It's already very exciting and it will be ex- very exciting to see the progress of all of that organising and the result of it. And otherwise, I think it is so multifaceted. I think that even small things like being um, able to call out, you know, horophobia when you see it, because those things like um, NH- the NHS issues, a lot of it does boil down to attitudes and stigma. I've heard so many times people say decriminalisation is very important and it would be absolutely central to my life to be able to work with other people or to be able to work safe, uh, work, you know, more, more safer and without p- fear of police repercussion. But stigma is a big big part of it as well and i think that changing stigma really boils down to each individual you know what else i think that within structures as well i was going to mention with the nhs it's just it's again more tied to students because that's my background but the nhs courses they don't allow students to do they have extremely strong restrictions on what students can can and can't do and many students have been known for being kicked out of their courses for being sex workers and i think that something like that is a, a good example as well of how it's a big societal attitude issue this idea of you know being a sex worker is is going to make you unprofessional it's going to make you unemployable and things like that can change can begin to change with things as small as an individual being more open about being tolerant and accepting i mean it's it's i think as simple as that in some some sense. <laughs> and we hope that this discussion on uh, consent for sex workers is also a way uh, for us to mm. change the conception we have on sexuality at large, but also on, on sex work. Anything you would like to add? Yes, our Twitter is at sexworkhive, so it will come up as Swarm. And we are also on Facebook, Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement. And my Twitter is Fenderlost, <laughs> how it sounds. <laughs> well, great, Fez. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you.